Hey everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to That Trippy Show. Uh, first of all, I really appreciate all the feedback on last week's show. Uh, you've tweeted at us, emailed ideas, and spoken to many of you about it. But that conversation started because, uh, in a lot of ways, because of today's uh, guest, Steve Schmidt, uh, who is you know with the Lincoln Project, somebody I've admired, even though we've uh, a lot of those Lincoln Project guys and I were on different sides over the years uh, in pretty partisan fights. I really admired um, what they did last year to take on on Trump and, and and what's turned into this authoritarian movement. And it was actually um, being on the phone on a phone call with Steve and uh, Rick Wilson and others from the Lincoln Project uh, that started me to get even more clarity that you know the fight we're in isn't uh, isn't Democrats versus Republicans isn't uh, left versus right it, it really is an authoritarian movement uh, that we're fighting and it's it's against all of us uh, and all of us have to be in that fight together I wanted our listeners uh, to hear from you Steve to, uh, what you think about this and uh, what you think we all need to do it's thanks so much for being with us today well, it's great to be with you, Joe. Um, I think that we live in a momentous time in our politics, I, I believe, uh, are profoundly more extreme right now in June than they were even on January 6th. The, the Republican Party has undergone since then a, another metastasization. And before we get into it, I mean, I think it's hard for Americans to wrap their minds around this. Yeah. Kevin McCarthy doesn't look like what an autocrat's supposed to look like, at least not in the movie sense, right? He's not wearing a uniform. He doesn't have a sinister accent like Hans Gruber from Die Hard. <laughs> yeah. the, the moment, though, is, is clear is these people have lost faith with democracy. Um, are they fascists? Well, this autocratic movement has fascistic markers. It's eclectic. It is made up of white supremacists and white nationalists at the margins. It teams with violence and menace. It is corrupt. It's unfaithful to the constitutional principles of the country. It is built and ordered around a, a cult of personality. What do we call it? Who will explain it in a way that's in a way that's direct? Churchill went to Missouri uh, a year or so after the end of the Second World War, and he talked about an iron curtain. Was the metaphor he used descending in Europe to talk about that even after this terrible war, there would be another great competition ahead that became the Cold War. So. You know, I, I think a starting place is, is what is it and what do you call it? And, and for me, it's clear as day. We have an American autocratic movement ordered around Donald Trump and sustained at the highest levels of leadership by the third oldest political party in the world, which has become the vessel, the host uh, for advancing this extremism in America. Yeah, I saw you. I think it was on LPTV last week where you said when our elected start telling us that they're intimidated or afraid for their lives, then, then we aren't living in a free country anymore. I mean, that uh, you guys, look, I, I got to tell you, I know 
from just going against uh, the party establishment within my party, whether it was Howard Dean or uh, with Seth Moulton uh, against an incumbent Democrat up in Massachusetts. I mean, the penalty I've paid and people pay, consultants pay when they do things like that. But the, the courage and just the straightforwardness. I, I mean, when I got in the car and drove up to, to Vermont, with like 500 bucks in my pocket, nobody in their right mind. And I think Howard Dean had $98,000 in, in the bank. I didn't go up there to get rich and no one, no one who went up there to do it. When you guys left the party and did what you did, the, I mean, the massive risk with nothing coming in, you know, not, not, I mean, knowing that you were, you know, you know, turning your backs on the party and that there was no way to go back. I, I, just admire that courage and the fact that the difference you made, you know, I know there's been a lot of back and forth about this with, with media and stuff, but the fact is there's 44,000, Biden wins by 44,000 votes. We win Georgia by a few thousand votes uh, for the Senate seats. Everybody, everybody who had their oar their in the water made a huge difference last time. But where do you see the Lincoln Project now, I mean, where do we, where do we, where does it move forward? What 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 are the things we all have to do and and, and um, to take this on in twenty twenty two? Well, the Lincoln Project is a pro democracy organization. That's our that's our issue. Um, I want the debate to continue. Um, the the differences over policy now to me are all subordinated by this fundamental issue around around democracy and why it's so essential now. If you look around the country, right, our, our government, it's a mess, right? You're a young person out there. Why, why do you even want to live in a democracy, right? Isn't Singapore better, right? It seems like it functions really well, totally, totally competent. Or what about some other system? Um, Churchill said that democracy is the worst form of government ever invented by man, except for, except for all of its alternatives. It's the only system of government that's ever been that places the human being above the power of the state. Every other system orders the power of the state above the dignity of the human being. And, and that's what we need to fight for. We're not interested in winning elections, though we are, because the cost of losing an election means we lose the democracy. Certainly at a presidential level, you and I have talked about the consequences of losing the House and Senate yeah. in, this, in, this, in this midterm. But here's just a couple of things, you know, for everybody listening. Democrats have a five-seat majority in the House. My number right now, um, which I don't think is pessimistic, I don't think is optimistic, is, is just I think it's going to be about right, is that Democrats are going to lose 12 seats in the redistricting process net, right? So on election day, Democrats start out in the whole seven, seven seats. There have been three occasions in the last 120 years where the incumbent president's party has picked up seats in that, in that first midterm happened in 1902, 34, and 2002. And in each of those cases, what happened was the election became nationalized around a threat. And the threat is the loss of our democracy, which I believe the American people want to keep. I think the polling is pretty clear about this. But we're at this moment where there's a lack of clarity and focus on the part of the Democratic Party's leadership. 
about defining that threat, being able to explain it. This idea that there is good faith on the Republican side, the idea that there is a compromise to be had, the idea that the bipartisan the, the bipartisan agreement is just around the corner is delusional, is delusional. You know, it's funny uh, when you think about history, and I had this conversation with someone, right? You think about, well, having read this stuff, if, if, if I could go back in time and I was Neville Chamberlain, right, this is, this is what I would have said, right? Well, you get to do that right now. Right. When someone right. looks you in the eye and says, no, this will go back to normal. It's not that bad. Trump's on Twitter. He's gone. He's not dangerous. It's it. it we have a we have a courage crisis in the country. We have a reality crisis in the country in that even people who are people of good faith and believe in the things that we do are delusional about right. the proximity of the danger and how, and I mean profoundly thin, the margin is that separates the democracy coalition to falling under the power of the autocracy coalition. Now, you and I have talked about this. I, 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 you, may, you actually made me think about it this way, is that what's happening is, the, the, you know, we've been in this two-party thing for so long most Americans and and the Mansions and the Bidens and and me sometimes slip into well they definitely think it still exists. I slip into occasionally thinking it's it still exists even on the on this show it, in terms of talking about 2022s. It doesn't exist, and therefore Mansion thinks he's nego he's negotiating with hostages, right? You know he's not even negotiating with the hostage takers. If you think you can go back and get convince uh, some kind of bipartisan solution uh, or or sustain it, you know sustain some bipartisanship, it's just not going to happen when the Republican Party's been taken over by this autocratic movement. There's no negotiating with it. So I, I think the first step, my, from my perspective, the first step is like sound the alarm. We have to wake up more Republicans, Democrats, and Independents that it is that fragile, that it is it is this urgent, it is this dangerous, uh, because I think there's just, we're all stuck in this two-party, you know, where the language of it, the reaching across party lines, trying to find common ground, this is all things that we we grew up as Americans believing that we should all try to do. But right now, that's not, and that's why I think Manchin does what he does, says what he said, you know, some of these, and they are people of goodwill, but they're stuck in this delusion uh, and they have to, we have to break them out of it, I think, somehow. Well, you and I are both old enough to remember in our, in our political careers where someone could look at you with a straight face and still say the United States Senate was the world's greatest deliberative body. Yeah. Um, honest no to God, right? That, yeah, that, no that would have been, that would have been, that would have been a straight face assertion, um, that, that nobody really would have argued with, um, within our working careers. Um, and it's certainly not that now. So understanding this, I, I, I think, is essential. One, if there's not a congressional investigation, um, and by congressional, I mean a people's investigation, right? That government of the people, by the people, for the people, the legislative branch, if they do not investigate in a, in a commission form and attack on them, incited by the executive branch, 
we will be fated to a generation of political violence in this country. Mark my words. And anybody who doesn't understand the causality between the two is a fool. Second, the events that happened on the 6th, the murder, the mayhem, the, the insurrection were followed by a vote. And that vote now has been followed by the introduction of hundreds of pieces of legislation around the country that give to all white legislative bodies the ability to decertify a state election by majority vote if they don't like the result of it, right? So now the God-given franchise that we're supposed to believe in has become, well, dependent on whether the result is tolerable or not. But the, the, the lie, we talk about the big lie, what is it? And it, it was this, that Trump won the election in the middle of the night, these millions of votes from all the black precincts and in the inner cities came due and, they, and the blacks stole the, stole the election from, from Trump, right? That's the, that's the lie. If you can't see the totality of that and you can't understand the lessons of history about what happens when you scapegoat a population, about the severity and impact of the lie at the core of a political movement that venerates a, a leader. If you can't process that and, and, and how dangerous that is, um, I, I, don't know what, I don't know what to say. And the problem is the leadership of the Democratic Party aside from Biden, has not demonstrated that they have a grasp of this. And, and they have to as a moral proposition, right? The moral proposition is the right to vote, not the integrity of the filibuster, right? And, and so Joe Manchin here, right, is profoundly on the wrong side of history. Now, if he's got a play here and he's saying, listen, We'll lower it to 55 votes. Mm -hmm. we'll, we'll, we'll do this in a way that's not ripe for abuse. And, and we're seeing someone legislate, which is, which is very rare to see. If we're seeing someone dealing right now, but at the end of the day, right, the, the defense of the franchise in 2021 is a moral issue with profound implications for, for democracy. And you can't have an amoral autocratic party, right, that's being battled uh, by a delusional appeasement party. I can, I can tell you who wins, and it's not the good guys. And, and right. that's, that's this moment that, that we have to get our heads around. So you mentioned that you thought, uh, other than Biden, what's Biden doing right? What's your take on him? I love him. I said before the election on, on, on the months coming up that, and it's too early to say this, and I, and I know that events can unfold, but he's off to a great start. And I, and I said during the election, I had a feeling that he would be a great president. What has always been true in the country's history, almost providentially so, is that it has produced the right leaders in the, in the right moments. Lincoln um, is a great example of this. He was preceded by the worst president in American history until we had Trump, Buchanan. And he was followed by the second worst president in American history, who's now dropped to third uh, because of Trump, um, Andrew Johnson. <laughs> yeah. 
one of the things that happened on this trip that was really was really important was a recommitment to the Atlantic Charter, which is a which is a document that doesn't get as much attention as it deserves in the modern history of the country. I'm just going to tell a quick story because it speaks to the political genius of FDR. And there was a reason that Biden renewed the Atlantic Charter. When Churchill and FDR met secretly off the coast of Newfoundland in the gray, the U.S. Navy, British ships rendezvousing, one of the great dramatic moments, right, in the history of statesmanship, right? The, the scenes of Franklin Roosevelt walking through the pain of his polio with the heavy braces onto the deck of his majesty's ship, the Prince of Wales, the British fleet at attention, the, the religious service, the singing of the sailors of both ships with both leaders um, of Sunday hymns connecting the two countries together. Roosevelt went there before the United States was in the war with the hope of getting Churchill to sign a document about what the world would look like, at least conceptually, in its first designs after the war. Churchill went there trying to get FDR to declare war, go to Congress, and FDR wasn't ready. But the Atlantic Charter was a statement about the dignity of the human being and democracies who would prevail after this terrible struggle and what the world would look like in its aftermath. Yep. Now, now that world that FDR envisioned, he talked a lot about. Substantially, it's manifested by the UN Declaration of Human Rights that Eleanor Roosevelt introduces, right? But this is FDR's vision, and he talked about it long into the night one evening in the White House near the end of the war with the, with the Canadian prime minister. And he said to Mackenzie King that this vision he had, he didn't believe that it would last forever. And he didn't have the aspiration that it would. He just wanted it to endure for as long as everybody who was alive on the day the war was going to be won was still alive. Well, here we are. So it means something when the president of the United States and the British prime minister renew a document before he goes to see the leaders of the great democracies of the world and issue several important communiques that begin to set the boundaries of the great debate we're going to have about two different visions of how the world should be. And there's a vision, which is an American Brit a vision, a Swedish, a Canadian, a British, a French, that's humanistic, pluralistic, um, believes in tolerance and freedom for people of color, for gay people, for everybody. And there's a brutalist alternative through this Chinese model, right, where, and I think this is important to understand about technology, the totalitarian societies of the 20th century they needed to use brute force to control their populations. Technology makes the application of that force very gentle, very subtle. The algorithm is what will imprison people in a Chinese slave state where if your algorithmic bracelet doesn't open up the subway door, you don't get to go eight miles from home because of your score. 
or you can't work here, or you can't do that. So, so this vision of the world, Biden is starting to articulate in a way that's essential to the great competition that's going to play out. And so I, I, thought his, I, thought his ta- I thought his job in Europe was tremendous. I think he has shown dignity, probity, and rectitude in the office, empathy, humanity. The COVID response has been terrific. Um, when you look at the teetering, sinking rowboat of fools and crooks and weirdos and fringe players that was the Trump administration, the total competence and normalcy, having a press secretary who doesn't lie to the country, you know, a thousand times a week, all of these things are profoundly important, but they don't wash away the danger. And it's not up to Joe Biden alone. He's got a country to run, administration to run. There is a movement in this country that has to be broken, right? And that, that means a long winning streak until it's put into the ground. Yeah, well, that's what, the thing that I think is Biden, Biden has to try to find whatever commonality he can. Uh, first of all, I think the Democratic Party has to writ large understand it, it, it's got to be bipartisan within itself. I mean, let's forget about the ideology on either side of the party. We got to work with and just get stuff done and let and Biden needs to govern. And so he needs even if it is two or three, uh, only two or three Republicans, but as much as he can. In the meantime, there is this autocratic movement that has to be crushed. It has to be. And it, it, that's the question now is with Trump out of office, with with Joe Biden lowering the temperature. And what I, what I think is, you know, obviously it's incumbent on on everybody out there, regardless of party, as citizens to get involved in the 2022 election, whether it's joining something like the Lincoln Project or something else or getting involved locally and, and in the field. But uh, who's losing steam? I mean, if, if, if Biden's lowering the temperature and Trump's not got the same you know, channels he had, but this autocratic movement is still un, you know, moving out there, or groups like the Lincoln Project gaining steam, or 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 is Trump still still pumping the, the gas pedal enough that it's growing? God, it's such a good question, and I think it speaks to the singular thing that the political media in the country doesn't understand. Right, that 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 there have been few stories written about this in a way that people people can right. understand. I've always been a little bit of a science nerd with the with all the space program stuff. So I'm going to try to explain it this way. You think about a star. When a star collapses, right, it gets smaller. But, but what happens when it gets smaller? It gets denser. It gets hotter. It gets heavier. And then it gets smaller. And as it gets smaller, all the way to it becomes a black hole, it continues to get hotter, denser, heavier, smaller. The Republican Party has shrunk dramatically since January 6th. It's now the party of choice, self-identified for roughly 
a third of the country, 33, 34%. These are, these are the lowest numbers in 45, 50 years. Why? They, they are directly because of the insanity, the murder, the malice, and the assault on democracy on the, on the sixth. So the party has shrunk. What does a political party do? What, 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 are, what, is, what is in its nature that's unique from the star? Well, as it shrinks, it too gets hotter, gets more extreme. Mm -hmm. In an extreme movement, what do you see? Passive purity. Now, there is a particular type of extreme movement. The tests of purity here aren't around a conviction or an idea or a policy. They're around loyalty and fidelity to a human being, a person, Trump. So, so everywhere in the world where there is an autocratic movement, you know, in the spring, um, fathers and sons all over America and daughters go to spring training, right? It's a, it's a rite of passage, right? It's, a, it's football in the fall. This is, in an autocratic movement, right, this is what the purge is. Right? We're going to hunt down the heretics and, and kick them out, right? So you have this constant cycle of purging right, that, that takes place. This party, right, will get crazier as it gets smaller. But since it's one of only two choices in an election, it can still come to power. Right. Even from a minority position by making an argument that's fear-based to the people that have abandoned it by saying to them, those people over there that you voted with the last two elections, they hate you. This is why Republicans on Fox are talking about critical race theory. What, what they're saying is, this party is filled with militant black people who want to annihilate your culture and hate white people. And they mine, like data engineers mine for Bitcoin, the craziest statement by the craziest person that can be found on the left, air it through a sophisticated propaganda network and portray it as a fucking panzer division that's about to break through the Mexican border, not to mention the landing craft and air forces of black aggression that are about to end any remnant right of western civilization on the north american continent that's what the argument is right and so this is a moment that that requires very fierce pushback and containment to make sure that 34 percent can't grow the reason the nazis came to power in 1932 was very simple the country had a middle class Middle class looked at 120-something uniformed communists, and then it looked at 170 uniformed Nazis with about 12 center-left people and eight center-right people left between them in the middle. And they saw what happened to the middle class in Russia 20 years earlier, and they said then, every right-wing movement that has ever come to power has come to power electorally on the basis of fear of the other, stoked 
by illusions and race baiting and fear of the left, fear of socialism. And that is at the core of the messaging and it will work. When, when you look at the polling in New York right now in this mayor's race, 77% of black New Yorkers want more cops on the subways. What does that tell you, right, about the disconnect between Twitter and reality so far as it comes to people who actually live in America and will go and vote? And so we're in a really precarious situation in understanding the danger, what it is, but also its goals, its tactics, and how it's fighting. Because they're fighting a very different fight than the Democrats are fighting in response to it. And I worry about that. And the uh, and no one's really holding corporate or the media actually into account either. Because, I mean, again, they're still acting like there's these two parties and it's the two-party, you know, uh, you know, can can we reach bipartisanship? Is this bill going to pass? Uh, hey, we, we give to both sides. And what they don't understand is you can't not be giving to both sides. You can't say we're not going to give to the 139, uh, 147 who, who voted to not certify the, overturn the election results on January 6th. And then a few months later, go back to, oh, it's two parties. We'll, we'll give, we'll, of course we'll give to them. And, and we got to call them out. I mean, I think a lot of this is, is basically sounding the alarm to get more people to understand the true danger and how, how vulnerable the democracy really is at the second, uh, obviously everybody's got to get involved to fight that. And then third, I think there's a piece of this about getting the media and and corporate America uh, to understand that they're living in in delusional place too, to some degree. They got to understand the stakes and not, uh, and, and again, they're either with the authoritarian movement or they're with, everybody who's against it. But I, I mean, do you see a way to get company, you know, to sort of. Yeah, we're, we're going to announce um, pretty soon. Um, you have a bit of a preview on this. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see the reaction, but we're going to announce some actions. We won't say the companies today, but one East Coast, one West Coast, one tech, one financial institution, Both companies made pledges about not supporting any of the people who voted to disenfranchise millions of black votes, who incited the insurrection with their with their lying. And these two companies broke those broke those promises. And let's just talk like real quickly about like how a company works. Right. You know, just in the C-suite, because I think a lot of people don't don't know this. Right. So you got the general counsel. General counsel is mitigating risk, right? Doesn't want anything to bad to happen, doesn't want to get sued, wants to protect the CEO, wants to protect the board. You have the board. Um, boards are under heightened scrutiny. You have the CEO, right? Um, a lot of CEOs are, are very public. And then they're served by a bunch of people, the chief marketing officer, right? The company's image, right? Um, but also, right, the, the head of government affairs, Right. And the head of government affairs, right, is walking in there. Right. And you got the general counsel saying, be careful. And the CEO not wanting to be criticized. And the board is cautious. And the the general counsel's walking in 
right? And, and saying we got to be careful. But the head of government affairs, you know, more often than not, the general counsel, but sometimes, you know, an independent piece is saying, but you don't understand. Right? They're going to fuck us if we if we don't if we don't get money, right? To the to the committees, blah 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 blah. So now we're at an irreconcilable position, right? The company has to make a choice. So I tell you what we're going to do. We're going to geofence these campuses with digital messaging and advertising. Everyone who walks in, walks out is on it. We're going to bombard them. And what we're going to try to do is incite insurrections within the employee base of the company. Now, these particular companies will have um, talked a good game about making statements in favor of racial justice, um, complimentary about Black Lives Matter. But at the end of the day, they are giving money to people who voted to throw out millions of black votes on the basis of a lie to install the loser of the election as the winner in America's first dictator two hours after a murderous insurrection uh, that saw five police that saw police officers murdered, saw five people killed, saw the Confederate flag brought through the Capitol Rotunda and saw insurrectionists shitting in the halls and pissing on the walls of the floor of the House chamber and the Senate chamber. Right, so we're, we're going to communicate to the employees what their company's doing and um, see what happens. But we're going to use we're going to use the First Amendment um, as our sword and our shield as we fight to tell the truth about the danger of this and to point out the hypocrisies um, and everywhere we can to try to cripple this autocratic movement, which by definition means attacking its financiers um, and attacking its most cynical supporters. Steve, one thing that we've brought up a couple of times and about, uh, we had uh, our friend Nico Mele on the show a couple months ago talking about the idea that one of the things that we're really losing the fight on here is is in the town squares and the decline of local news. You had something a couple days ago, is that LA Magazine thing that you brought up about the idea that essentially state news services, state house news services are, are gone. And, and what that means is these autocratic movements in the states are essentially being allowed to operate in the dark. How can we, you know, first of all, I want your take on that, but what do we need to do to sound the alarm on that? Because one of the things we've always had a problem with as a Democratic Party is this focus on the presidency and focus on these big federal races. And we've essentially gotten lapped in the states. You know, um, Joe was working in politics I, I, in the 1980s. I, I, I was not. Um, but in the in the 1980s, um, you had this group of progressive, not ideologically in the way we use it today, but progressive in the sense about using the power of state government to advance ideas. Um, and you had Lamar Alexander and Engler and these dynamic Republican governors and it and the Republican, the Republican Party became um, the party of ideas. Um, Moynihan, who I think is one of the towering public intellectuals and great senators of the 20th century, right, made this made this point um, observationally in the in the 80s. And people talked about the states within the within the conservative movement as the laboratories of democracy. But, you know, that's a, that's a little bit washed clean on, on reality. 
because what, what we're seeing is is one thing, but let's just look at the history of the country. Like for most of our history, a lot of our states, southern states in particular, have been laboratories for authoritarianism, right? And um, all of these regressive voting rights restrictions we're seeing in 2021 are part of that. But we're seeing a lot of other states that used to be laboratories for democracy becoming laboratories for authoritarianism. Wisconsin's such a state. You know, when you, when you elect a new governor, right, people choose, right, hey, we're going to put the Democrats in, right, after, after a tumultuous period by Scott Walker. The outgoing Republican legislature stripped a lot of powers away from the incoming governor. And so it's very alarming because there's no oversight and there's no accountability. And, and you see it everywhere. I mean, school boards increasingly are now the entry portal for extremists in the QAnon movement who will climb up the, climb up the political ranks. Right. So it's, I don't know what to say. It's like, it's like Alex being in a forest fire, right? Which, which fire, what tree do you put out first? Right. But this is, this is another enormous issue, right? And it goes to the question of, you know, I think a lot of Democrats look and they say, well, we're in charge, right? Trump's out of power. Well, I don't know. I mean, he is narrowly, right? You know, his side in, in Washington, thank God. But, right, this autocratic movement has real political power in vast geographic expanses in this country over, over tens and tens and tens of millions of people. And, and part of it, you know, we have a political crisis in the country, but as that, as that article pointed out, we also have a profound journalistic crisis in this country. You know, you have some of the leading journalists in the country celebrating a catfish and a con man who's going around with the imprinter of uh, legitimate news organizations writing stories with 35 anonymous sources annihilating people's lives. Right. I think that you saw the effrontery of the press, right, that Biden corrected correctly um, a, a reporter and he didn't do it, I think, in any type of manner that he needed to apologize for. But if he felt like he was a bit of a wise guy, as the president said, you know, um, all the more power to him. But, um, you know, you see a you see on Twitter, you see on social media, you know, what, what are supposed to be serious people working for the most serious news organizations in the world, um, acting like middle school mean girls, um, circling and defending each other as if there's some virtue in being wrong in a question you asked the president of the United States after a very meaningful encounter with the president of the Russian Federation, right? And so there, you know, Joe started out talking about, talking out, talking about that in a country where the politicians are afraid of mob violence, in that, in that aftermath of that LA MAG story, one of the most accomplished investigative reporters in the country with the Miami Herald who broke the Epstein story, talked about the subject of the LA MAG story, this Yasher Ali guy, and said, wow, this is disturbing, and I hope I won't be destroyed for saying that. You have a you have one of the leading investigative right. reporters in the country saying, "Hey, I could be destroyed within ten days of Liz Cheney saying how many members are intimidated by violence." Wake up, wake up! And so we we have a we have a we have a brief period of time 
as a country here right now to get our shit together and get oriented around the reality of the fight ahead for American democracy. And the one thing, if you're if you want to look at things optimistically, what's always been the case is democracies have been slow to the fight under under threat. But once but once in it um, are savage in defense of it. And um, we need to be savage, savage in defense of American democracy. Um, Our country, despite all of its flaws, is remarkable, I think, in this respect, in that it's the only country in all of history founded on an idea idea that, that, that steps into the meaning of life, which we posit as the pursuit of happiness, right? There can be no happiness without freedom. There, there can be no happiness in imprisonment, where you have a lack of control and agency, and that agency is subordinated to the power of the state. That, that's what's on the line here, and we got to fight back against it. Well, Steve, uh, we'll be savage together for the next, uh, brother, for the next uh cycle or two, I think it's going to take at least no to 2024 to, to try to take this movement out. But I got to ask you, I mean, uh, through all this, I mean, you, you know, you talked about uh, the Senate being, a, you know, used to be a deliberative body with giants and it, you know, I worked for Kennedy, you worked for McCain. I mean, there were, there were true, it wasn't that long ago, right? No. That there really were, you know, sort of giants who could work. I mean, crazily, different on ideology, but could work yeah. together, you know, could, did, they were a deliberative body. And you said, that, and I agree with you, there's no going back. I mean, we're, you know, it, it's going to be a, a, a brutal fight to knock this movement down. It's, that's more important than seeing this as Republicans versus Democrats. But, but when it's, when we vanquish it, do we go back to fighting each other? I mean, you and I, you know, you, Stuart Stevens, we were all on different sides. I don't even know what we're fighting about at some level anymore when you come to these fights that were portrayed in the press, right, along this binary right-left line that, that doesn't exist, right? And I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. I'm, I'm as fucking outraged as Elizabeth Warren that people worth $100 billion who can fund their own space programs and are heavily subsidized in doing so by the taxpayer literally pay no income tax. I'm outraged by it. I've been outraged for a long time that we've decided in this country that there are classifications of employment that are so virtuous, like private equity, that they get to pay a lower marginal rate than all the rest of us, right? You know, it's you know, my issue on taxes, for example, has always been I pay half, half. Yeah. How much more do you want? Right. I, I, I think it's enough is my is my personal is my personal view. I know that someone worth one hundred billion dollars pays zero. Um, and I think that destroys and annihilates faith and belief in the system. I mean, I think that we are in an era of needed progressive reform right, that are democracy reforms. I'll give you, I'll give you a couple examples. There are, and, and I'll talk about like um, compromise in, in, in one minute. 
there are two groups of Americans that have been particularly abused by the federal government in the last couple of years. Puerto Ricans on the island, on the territory, um, and the citizens of Washington, D.C., through multiple shutdowns. You know, time to add two new stars to the flag for new United States senators. The answer is democracy. Give them a voice. Um, I think that it's time to like move beyond some of the debates we've been having for 50 years. Let's let's put the Equal Rights Amendment in the Constitution and let's put the word woman specifically in it. Let's put declaratively in it, right, that gay people, right, are, are equal citizens also. Put it in the Constitution, right? We we have we have a we have a list of shit we need to do in this country. Um, I, I've spent a lot of the last 10 years working in international business, traveling around the world, right? We, 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 it's going to places in Asia and Europe are like visiting advanced civilizations, right? Coming into this country, it's like arriving in a third world country. We have so much work to do. We have, right, on a conservative proposition, we must have broadband to every inch of this country, just like we had electric, electricity in the 1930s. Right. I, I want to stop yeah. arguing about the Reagan presidency. Right. And stop arguing about issues that like haven't had relevancy in the country for for 30 years. And, and so like my politics, I don't think are substantially changed. I I, I have um, always been a moderate, um, a centrist. I grew up in I grew up in New Jersey. I spoke out for gay marriage in 2008. I. You know, but but I think the issues and the challenges require pragmatism and common sense in a in a new world in a new era where we need to be able to sit across from each other and say, what do we do here? This is a, it's a mess, and 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 we got to get out of it. And the first thing we got to do is get out of it is stop digging the hole, which we've done with the Biden presidency. Right, it's the first rule of holes. Right, when you're in one, stop fucking digging. Right now, we got to climb out of the hole. It's going to take a long time to climb out of the great hole that Trump made. Um, but we have some time. And, and, that's, and that's the good news. Well, let's climb out of it together. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for you being with you. us. Thank really you. appreciate it. You can follow Steve on Twitter at Steve Schmidt S-E-S. Thanks, everyone, for listening to That Trippy Show. We'll be back with another special episode dropping Tuesday. As always, please subscribe, leave a review on Apple or wherever you listen. And if you can, um, we'd like to, uh, we've got to sound the alarm. We've got to get more people to understand uh, what's going on. Uh, you know, if you could send the link uh, of the Schmidt Show to uh, this episode to friends and tell them to listen, that'd be great. You can always send us a question to that trippy show at gmail.com or leave us a question and a review on iTunes. See you on Tuesday for the special episode and then next Friday. Thank you.